Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. That's the second book in from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and we're looking at this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. A couple of housekeeping things to dispense of before we move along. Thank you for your many condolences for the loss of my Auburn Tigers yesterday. Congratulations to you Virginia fans. Uh, but God has spoken his disapproval this morning from the heavens. And um, so I feel affirmed in that. Um, and then uh, let me say more seriously, you can see in the financial report that God has, uh, is answering uh, our prayers by making us a generous people. The deficit has been reduced by a third just this month. And uh, it is uh, something for us to rejoice in and uh, a lot of just ordinary gifts spread over the people of God. And thank you for expressing your support for your mission, this mission of Second Presbyterian and your personal words of encouragement to me uh, and uh, as well as to others here who are your missionaries. And we will give special praise to God for that in our prayer for illumination for the scripture. But Thank you for your love for your church, and God continues to pour out his blessings on us in unmistakable ways. We're looking at uh, this passage in the first nine verses of this chapter this morning, and we've been looking at the book of Exodus the way Jesus shows us to look at it by his example, by seeing that the scriptures from uh, Moses to the prophets and on reveal that he is the Christ. And we, we're not reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament, but learning to read the Old Testament the way Jesus would have taught it. And that is that God is, we look at every event in the book of Exodus and we see God the Redeemer. And we look at that redemption that He works and how it's preparing for the work of Christ and it leads us to Christ and the kind of redemption He's brought us. Redemption that is holistic redemption from our sins redemption from spiritual oppression and all other forms of oppression as well and we look from Christ then to ourselves and ask how are we to respond to that grace by participating in his redemption over the last couple of studies we've looked at the at the kind of personal redeemer uh, Moses was crafted to be which anticipates the personal redeemer of Christ and the personal redemption that God brought to those people in Egypt and the personal redemption Jesus has brought to us. And I want you to see something very exciting about uh, the plan that God has for you as one who has embraced his redemption. If that is true, that you have asked Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the sub substitution of your unrighteousness for his righteousness, and he set you on a path of being redeemed body and soul eventually. If that is true of you, you have a cosmically significant purpose that he wants to show you in verses 1 through 9 of Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at it together. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. 
And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, which has come down from heaven in Jesus Christ and And then every word that we study in the Word of God points us back to that same Christ. And we thank you for preserving this church for over 175 years as a place where that Word is preached. We thank you for the mission you've entrusted to us, the thousands of lives that have been transformed by the mission of Second Presbyterian, people brought to faith, people who equipped in the faith, people sent to all corners of the world with the good news. And thank you for the privilege of including us in its mission. And we exclaim with those Old Testament saints, who are we, O Lord, that you should make us as generous as this? It is you who does it because we're not naturally so as sinful people, but you have opened our hearts and made us generous. Continue to get a name for yourself through our uh, lives as they are transformed by your good news. And now we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fall unmistakably on us today, that we might understand this word from the gospel of the Old Testament, that we would apply it in our lives, that those who have never bowed the knee to Christ, that this would be the word that draws them to salvation in you, and you would equip us to be those who take this good news of the kingdom to our neighbors, across the street, our workplaces, and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray it, and God's people said together, amen. I have very fond memories of this part of the country because every summer I would uh, spend it, I would spend the summer with my grandparents in Jonesboro, Arkansas. My grandfather was an aviation pioneer of sorts and continued an aviation career uh, into the the, uh, the 80s. And uh, every summer I would spend time with him in his aviation business. I was right on his heel, everything he did, everything he was working on, everything he was servicing, everything he was selling, everything he was flying, I was right there with him. And so he had to devise little jobs for me to do to get rid of me for some time. And he would convince me how important these jobs were. 
And so when I got old enough to drive a tractor and, and uh, drive a bush hog, he said, I've got a very important job for you today. And uh, it is to mow the grass strip. He had a grass landing strip that his customers would come in on. And uh, uh, he said, you know, it's important, George, that we keep the planes flying. We've got to keep the planes flying, so you've got to mow that grass strip. Well, he knew it would take me all day to do it. And it was, uh, it was a very inspiring job at first, that is, in the first pass. But there were many passes to go after that. The thing that kept me going, however, was that, was that word. You've got to keep the planes flying. I was keeping the planes flying, I thought, and I really was mowing the grass. I really was doing something significant. Now, I wasn't, he could have gotten it done a lot more efficiently, a lot uh, more quickly. He could have had the rows a lot straighter than mine were, but he chose to do it through me. He chose to include me in that mission. And it's very much the same with our Heavenly Father. That when Christ calls you to himself, when he unites you to himself, the Father includes you in his redemptive mission. The Father calling Moses to himself included him in this mission. He could have done it a lot more efficiently. He could have done it a lot more quickly. He could have come down directly without Moses. He could have kicked the gates open in Egypt. He could have killed the Pharaoh. He could have killed all the Egyptians and let the Israelites go. He could have picked them up and transported them to the promised land in a lot more efficient way. But he included the people as they groaned to him and cried out to him for mercy. He included heroes like Shifra and Pua to protect those little boys. He included Moses and he includes you in his mission. A cosmically important mission, I say, because when we preach the God, when we share the gospel, we illustrate, uh, uh, imitate the gospel. We're not just telling people how to change their minds. And we're not just telling them how they can find forgiveness of sins. It is that. But we are connecting them to a redemptive work of Christ that will not be finished until he has transformed everything until he has set all the creation loose from its bondage to corruption, until he has destroyed every oppressor and made every enemy a footstool to his feet. And he says in Romans 8 that you, as one who has been saved, you're only the first fruit of everything else he is going to do, and he includes you in that cosmic mission. Three things you need to know as you embark on that cosmic mission. Three things you need to know for your encouragement, for your reminding, for your patience. You, you need to know as you respond, obedience is a response to grace. And so obeying his call, obeying the call of a graciously redemptive God means that you submit to his preparation to be a part of that call. It means that you rest in his promise that he is going to accomplish that mission through you and you imitate Christ. You imitate your God by serving people. Look at the first couple of verses for that point about the preparation that is necessary to being a participant in God's cosmic mission. 
Moses had to go through that preparation. That preparation involved several things. It involved training, it involved humbling, it involved finishing. Moses was made ready to hear this call. He's identified in verse 1 as keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. Just think how dramatic that change has been for him. He was one who was taught He was one who was prepared by teaching. Acts chapter 7 verse 22 says, He learned the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was given the the most prestigious degree on the face of the earth at the time. He He was given the best education, secularly speaking, available. And and surely it came into 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 uh, became beneficial to him as he's leading a people through the wilderness and he has to set them up into a nation state he was introduced to how to shape and lead and form a nation state in in Egypt he was trained given good training surely he was given good training by his mother whispering truth in his ear as well as she reared him but that training was incomplete until he was humbled Moses would not have been in this place to hear the voice of God from the mountain of God at Mount Horeb or called elsewhere Mount Sinai. He would not have been there had he not been humbled. You just think, uh, just a short time before, Moses was a prince. And now he's a pauper. He's a, he was a prince. Now he's a Bedouin. He's a nomad. He was a member of the elite. Now he is a shepherd. Joseph said in Genesis 47 when he was talking to his, to his brothers who had come to Egypt, he was basically telling them, you know, keep your head down, uh, keep your mouth shut because uh, the Egyptians view shepherds as an abomination. Moses would have been taught that from his youth that shepherds are an abomination. Now he is one. And, and he is one who is employed by another here is a man who when he, at least when he met the the daughters of Zipporah's probably wearing his still his Egyptian robes because they recognize him to be an Egyptian here's a man who has fallen from so-called greatness into utter humiliation but now he's becoming useful because of it Now he's becoming a tool that comes more readily to God's hand and he's able to hear when God calls to him. But that's not the end of his work. He was trained and he was humbled in order to finish well. That was his primary job. You heard me quote a few weeks ago an old preacher who used to say that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life becoming a nobody, the second 40 years of his life, I mean, first 40 years of his life becoming a somebody, somebody, the second 40 years of his life becoming a nobody, and then the third 40 years of his life demonstrating what God can do with someone who thinks he's a somebody and has finally become a nobody. Another friend of mine puts it this way, for every one year of service that Moses rendered, he was in two years of preparation. But I would put it this way, it took 120 years to prepare Moses for his 
for his most important job, which was to climb Mount Pisgah and die pointing forward. You you can read about it in Deuteronomy 34. He climbs that mountain. God says, you're not going to go in, but you're going to point the people forward. And the text says, Moses' eye was undimmed and his zeal was unabated. Moses wasn't sitting on the precipice with his head in his hands saying, why can't I go in the land? He wasn't cynical. He, he wasn't sour. He wasn't depressed. His, lie, his eye was undimmed and his zeal unabated for saying, that is the promised land. Go into it. God has brought us. Your legacy will not be found in your youth. Your legacy will not be found in your middle years. Your legacy will be found at the end. As you finish well, as you finish your years pointing forward saying, He is a wonderful Savior. Keep following Him. Thank you, you who are patriarchs of this congregation. You've laid such a great foundation for the rest. But don't quit. Do not let iron enter your soul. Do not become cynical. Do not become, do not become caustic. We need you to finish well, loving Christ, continuing in encouragement. Some years ago, I was urged, I was asked by a group of fifty-somethings to, to give a lecture on finishing well. And I, I wondered how I could approach that topic. How do you define finishing well? First of all, and I at that at the time a, a study had been. Uh, re- uh, released that uh, was uh, several decades old in the formation, and it and the question that the research project was asking was, what is what is the secret formula for for rearing children who keep your faith when they're adults? And so they're studying children, they're studying adults, and they're asking those who are not following the faith of their parents, why they're not, and their, and their, or, or their characteristics, and those who were following the faith of their parents, what were the commonalities? And, and uh, here are some of the surprising results. That the commonalities among those parents who raised children who were still following the faith of their parents was not the precision of their doctrine. Precise doctrine is important, but that wasn't the secret. It wasn't their strict rules. In fact, that was counterproductive. It wasn't their pushing their children toward excellence. It wasn't creating them insecurity that would make them great. It was two things. It was emotional tenderness and presence. Emotional tenderness and presence. That, that their parents knew, they knew from their parents that their parents loved them, even though they may not have always been pleased with what they were doing. They knew they loved them anyway, and they knew no matter how far away they wandered, their parents would still love them. And that their parents didn't parent them in absentia, but they were near them. 
Now, I don't want you parents who have wayward children to think you are failures. And I don't want you to read too much into that study. All I want you to get, any of us, all I want you to get is that that's what it means to finish well. It means remaining emotionally tender. That is, people want to be near you to be encouraged in the Christian life. They're not running from you because you're caustic and your friendships are getting smaller and smaller. It means that you are drawing close to people, not sitting around thinking, why doesn't anybody ever come see me anymore? It's reaching out too. In that same project that I was asked to lecture on, I went back through all the funerals that I'd ever done. And I, I asked that question, those two things. I applied that template, emotional tenderness and presence. How many finished well? Of all the funerals I did, I could say it this way, only half finished well, or I could say half finished well. Anyway, I, either way, I wish the statistics were better. But I urge you, to keep your heart before the Lord Jesus, for him to continually tenderize it and for you to keep near God's people and those who need the gospel and not withdraw. Isn't that this training pattern, this is the training pattern we see in Jesus. He is the one who, was, who, who grew, he was trained. He's the one who grew in, in his wisdom and and stature and, and favor with God and man. He is the one who was humbled even to the point of death on the cross, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. One who took up flesh and blood because the ones he loved and came to save had flesh and blood, and he took it up so that he might do that most important work at the end of his life, that he might finish well by defeating the power of death for them, by dying in our place. And if that's the pattern that God took Moses through, if he took, it, if he took Christ through it, then if you are united to Christ, will you not be going down that same pattern? You are being taught and you are being humbled in order to finish well. Your humbling, your weakening is not a disqualification. It doesn't mean that your faith is weak. It, is mean that it means that God loves you and God loves this kingdom mission enough that he would humble you to make you a tool that comes readily to his hand. But how do you do that? Do you just decide today, I'm going to finish well? You can't do that. You have to rest in his promise. You have to go back to Jesus and say, I have nothing in me that can, I, I can't finish well. You know my indwelling sin. You know my, you, you, you know my faults. You know my lack of faith. And he says, rest on my promise. That's what he says to, to Moses. You see, in verses 3 through 6, he calls Moses to the burning bush. He saw that bush, and he heard God speak to him. And God said, don't come near, because the place where you're standing is holy ground. In verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The miracle of the burning bush is not that the bush didn't burn up. The miracle of the burning bush is that God drew near to Moses. The miracle is in the fire, which is the presence of God. 
When the angel of the Lord is mentioned, we know from the earliest commentators until now that it's the, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. Calvin said it's the eternal Son of God, the eternal Son of Yahweh in his mediatorial role. There's one hint that we have the presence of, of God coming near to Moses, and he would, he would know this nearness in the fire that would lead them through the night and uh, keep them warm at night and, and keep away their enemies, and it would transform into a pillar of of uh, a, a cloudy pillar during the day to shield them from the sun and to guide them on their way. And even if you're not convinced that the angel of the Lord is the appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, you have to know this, that every place where you see an aspect or a function of one of the persons of the Godhead, you see the activity of that person of the Godhead. And here you see mediation. You see heaven being brought to earth. You see an unholy man being able to talk to a holy God. And you see God coming down to provide a sacramental image of his presence so that he could remind his people, despite the weakness of his flesh, I will never leave you or forsake you. What does it mean to rest in the promise of God? It means, first of all, to rest in the assurance that God is with you. He is with you in Christ. He's proven that by putting on flesh. And Jesus said, I won't leave you alone. I won't leave you comfortless. When I go back to heaven, I'm going to send my vicar. I'm going to send my spirit he's going to move inside you and you will never be without me I will never leave you or forsake you no matter how dim your way is right now no matter how how fuzzy is our heaven's promises no matter how depressed or anxious you are you must know and you will know as a born-again person in your heart of hearts that Jesus has not left you, and he never will. That's part of the promise. The second part of the promise is implied when he says, I am uh, making you a promise. I am, I am, he identifies himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That, that communicates his, his, um, his self-existence for sure, his endless resourcefulness. But specifically... It reveals that he is the God of sinners and that he uses tragically flawed people to advance his kingdom. When Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned, and even when they're mentioned separately, even more so, God is not... God is not saying, remember I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that as long as they were faithful, I would be faithful to them. Or that I made a promise to them that I would be faithful to their children as long as their children were faithful to me. He is instead saying, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if I can save them and advance my kingdom through them, I can do it through you. Just think for a moment how easy it is for us or how convenient it is for us to dismiss people through whom the work of God is coming because we're able to identify some tragic flaw in their life. There have been those Christians, even Christian ministers, who have been used by God despite their weakness to advance the will of God and yet, because we can find some tragic flaw in their life, it becomes a very convenient thing for us to dismiss them. 
God doesn't act that way, else he would dismiss you and me. And each one of these patriarchs had a tra- at least one tragic flaw. Abraham was uh, someone who was such a materialist, he bogged down halfway and had to be called again. He was so selfish in his concern for the preservation of his own life that he lied about his wife not just once but twice and allowed her to fall into the arms of another person. We don't know much about Isaac, and there's a reason for that. The Bible makes a, makes a point of that. And, but what we do know is is not very impressive. He was an indulgent, absentee father who liked the taste of wild meat. Jacob. Do I have to tell you about Jacob? Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Jacob was a conniver from the day he was born. Jacob was a manipulator. Jacob was a thief. Jacob was a coward. Jacob tried to make bargains with God. Moses, murderer. David, adulterer. God makes sure we know the tragic flaws of all of these Old Testament characters and New Testament characters so that we would not make the mistake of honoring unduly them, but rather pivot off of them to a God who is insistent on fulfilling his promise. The promise that he fulfills to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not a promise based on their faithfulness. It is a promise, as we learn from Galatians 3.16, to Christ. I will fulfill my promise to draw to myself those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to redeem the world for myself. I will fulfill that promise through Christ who will come through this line of tragically flawed people whose name will be exalted and will be shared by this tragically flawed people. And by tragically flawed people telling other tragically flawed people about Jesus, that's the way I'm going to get my glory. Some of you have put yourself on the sidelines. Some of you have checked out thinking that you are so tragically flawed you're no longer useful. That kingdom advance only belongs to people who remain good, quote-unquote. That your weakness, your failure, your moral failure, though not excused by Scripture, is one that, far from disqualifying you, can qualify you as one who can say with conviction, Jesus saves. He saves all of you. He can save from anything. And no matter what your sins are, no matter what your weakness is, Jesus not only saves, but he uses us, tragically flawed people, to advance the kingdom. That's what it means to rest in the presence of God, in the, in the promise of God, is to rely on his presence, and is to rely on his work through us. And then what is that work? That work is to serve people. That's the example of God, verses 7 through 9. Where God says, I've heard my people's cry, I must respond. Between chapters 2 and 3, we get that kind of divine necessity 
that God must respond to the groans of his people because he loves them. Do you realize what a radical, what a radical message that would have been to Moses who had been raised by the Egyptians, who taught him that the gods of their pantheon, the gods of the Egyptian pantheon were, were gods who didn't like people. They're, they're gods looking for any excuse to hurt people, to to harm people, and you had to figure out the sacrifices and, and system of obeisance to keep the gods away from you. But while he was hearing that in the classroom, he would have been hearing in his ear from his mother, Moses, because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he loves us, and he's going to hear our cry, and he's going to deliver us. Moses, God loves the people made in his image and he's going to send salvation to them. Salvation not just for their minds and their consciences and their hearts, but salvation for the whole of their existence. That's the privilege we have. And, and, and you have the privilege of advancing that kingdom in whatever vocation you're in. You don't have to be a vocational minister, vocational missionary, whatever calling God has given to you, a little C calling, your job, your big C calling is to love people made in the image of God, to pursue their good and their flourishing, all the while explaining to them that you do it in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're a sanitation worker, you're an electrician, you're a flagman, you're a road worker, you're a physician, you're a banker, you're an administrative assistant, you're a, you're a therapist, you're a, you're a preacher. No matter what your vocation is, mom, dad, sister, brother, you have the privilege. Every job you have is to be focused on people as image bearers of God and pointing them to Jesus Christ who will not only be able to relieve their need presently and temporarily, but he is able to relieve their bondage to corruption and decay and the fall forever and someday give them even a resurrection body. What a privilege we have. I just came from a conference where Johnny Erickson Tata was supposed to speak. And because she is battling, and Johnny Erickson Tata, by the way, was someone who, who broke her neck by a diving accident when she was in her teen years. The Lord used it to bring her to himself and has used her magnificently to draw many to himself as well as to address the physical needs of people who are limited in their physical movement or even quadriplegic like she is. But she's been battling cancer recently and the treatments for her cancer because her body's condition is is deconditioned she's uh, is compromised she's been in the hospital difficult, having difficult breathing she's fond of of imagining what heaven will be like and and she says she has a great sense of humor she's fond of saying that when she goes to heaven she's going to take her wheelchair with her and she's going to drag it up close to the throne. And she said, with her glorified body, she's going to run up the steps and stand next to Jesus. And she's going to say something like this. You know I'm thankful because you know my heart. And I've always been thankful to you. And I thank you for telling me the truth 
about uh, the, in this world you will have trouble. And I will tell you, that wheelchair over there was a lot of trouble. But the harder life got for me, she said, the harder life got for me, the more I leaned on you. And I thank you for that. I thank you for what you did through my suffering through that wheelchair. But now, if you please, you can send that wheelchair to hell. Somebody, after hearing her say that jokingly, came to her and she said, Johnny, you can't say that. You can't say that, that God is going to, going to send that wheelchair to hell because look at how God has changed you and so many thousands of lives through that wheelchair. In fact, she said, I think her friend did. I think that, that far from sending the wheelchair to hell, I think that God's going to decorate it. He's going to diamond stud it, representing the thousands and thousands of lives that he has changed through your weakness and your leading ever harder and harder on Christ. Johnny says this in conclusion. So friend, if you're in a wheelchair or using a walker or a cane or a crutch, try imagining it gilded and golden and encrusted in jewels. It's a strange and humorous picture, but remember it's a gift that causes you to be weak. And the weaker you are, the stronger you'll discover your Lord and Savior to be. More than 40 years in my wheelchair has taught me that. And in heaven, whether or not my old wheelchair is parked up there by the gates of pearl, whether or not my old wheelchair is parked up there, and, uh, and studded with jewels. Feel free to join me in dropping on brand new, grateful, glorified knees before our Savior and for all that he has done through our sufferings, yours and mine. God's not finished with you. He's not finished using you. If you're coming to Christ this morning, you're in for an incredible adventure frightening at times, but one that will be met with well done, good and faithful servant and the eternal satisfaction of realizing that God has included you in his cosmic mission. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us and that you would, that you would, um, Show us that the thorns of the flesh you have given to us, that the weaknesses, that the scars you have given to us are not unlike your own. They redound to your glory and point others to the source of real strength and total salvation. Use us, we pray. We yield ourselves to you. In the strong name of Jesus, in whose name we pray, God's people said, amen.